Welcome to the SoGrow Marketing Council podcast. The SoGrow Marketing Council is a membership organization comprised of growing marketers who want to stay ahead of developments in multiple areas of marketing. This podcast features recordings of SoGrow Marketing Council meetings. Tune in to hear expert marketers share tips and discuss the latest strategies and tools in marketing. To join the next meeting and be part of the discussion yourself, visit SoGrowPR.com. That's S-O-W-G-R-O-W-P-R.com and click on the Marketing Council tab. Let's get growing. Welcome to the SoGrow Marketing Council meeting and podcast. I'm so excited to see you guys in the new year. I know it's been a couple months since we have been off, so there's a lot going on in the marketing world. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys today and learning from you. So if you have not been with us before, the structure of the meeting is that we have several people who have signed up to present a tip, and they will have about four minutes to present an educational, non-promotional tip. And then we'll have about a minute or two afterwards for discussion. So this is an opportunity for you guys to ask questions, make a comment, and you know, really feel free to jump in there. This is really a discussion. And sometimes the best tips come out of those little discussions that happen after. So, you know, certainly feel free to jump in there. And then Sarah is going to be our timer today. So if you see her waving at you or if you hear her timer, that just means to go ahead and wrap up. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we like to record these and put these on the podcast. So when you say your tip, be sure to just say your name and your company and your area of expertise. That way people, especially the ones that are not joining us live today, will be able to know who you are. I also invite you guys to put your name, your contact information in the chat. If there's anything you want to share with us, like Anita, you've got your new book, post your book link in there. If you have an event coming up, feel free to share that. And then I invite you guys to just connect outside of this meeting. The purpose of the Sogro Marketing Council is to learn from each other. We all get together and we share tips from different industries. So, you know, somebody may share something from sales, somebody may share something from SEO or business management, whatever it might be. And so we can stay up to speed on all those different areas of marketing without having to do the research ourselves. But I also invite you guys to just network with each other. The reason this group started is because I had clients asking me, can you recommend somebody to do a website or a logo? And I'm so careful about who I recommend that I really want to know people and this gives us such a great opportunity to understand somebody's expertise, get to know them on a personal level. And that way, when somebody's looking for somebody, we can offer a, a recommendation and we can share business. So it's good all around. So today we're going to start with um, Rebecca, would you be willing to start today? Um, and then we'll do Kurt. And then Yana Tori has some news to share with us today about what's going on in the email world. So we're going to give her a little bit of extra time today because it's pretty important and you guys are definitely going to want to know what she is going to share today. So, all right. And you guys can share your screen if you want to. So Rebecca, I'm going to turn it over to you and just um, share your name and your company before you give your tip. Yes. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm Rebecca Breitzi. I do small business consulting. Uh, the business is RG Breitzi Consulting. And the way that I work with marketing is to make sure that marketing efforts connect to internal operations and vice versa. One of the biggest challenges that I hear marketers, and I mean that broadly speaking in a lot of different fields, um, talk about is 
getting the correct information from their clients. So getting information that is specific, that is tangible, um, and also that is consistent so that the marketing efforts that they're setting up are also tangible and consistent for that business. One of the tools that I like to use when I'm involved in a project is using the three sentence case study. So bringing, boiling down what a business does into three sentences that are themselves very tangible and not opinions. And that's the key. So what are the three sentences for a three sentence case study? The problem that the business solves, the action that the business takes to solve that problem, and the final result that their clients get. As I say, those three sentences have to be fact, and that's where part of the challenge comes in. So for example, if I'm working with a business that um, say offers payment solutions, the problem that they state cannot be something like payment solutions work badly or are broken or the system is not functional because that's an opinion. Instead, they need to say something that is factual, that is provable, that somebody can't just come in and give a contrary opinion. And of course, the other challenge to it is that it is hard to say what a business does in only three sentences because there's a constant feeling of, but I'm leaving things out. But that's the beauty of the challenge. Once you boil it down to three sentences, you're essentially saying, if you could only say these three things about your business, what would they be? So they're going to be things that matter. So that's the tool I use and that I want to share, the three-sentence case study. What is the problem? What is the action? What is the result? And are all three of those provable? Are they factual? Once you've boiled it down to that, it's very easy then to work in reverse and add back in the information that you can use in uh, your marketing messaging and whatever your marketing vehicle is. That's my tip. Thank you, Rebecca. That's great. Do you have any thoughts in terms of being able to prove something like how, because sometimes it's not always easy to get those facts, especially when it's something that's a little subjective. Do you have any thoughts on like how to actually prove something and what that might look like or some examples of that? One tip is that's why this is best done in conversation. So if you want a client to do this or you want this from a client, don't give it to them as homework. Do it in a conversation with the client. Um, and then the, the beyond that, it's really just questioning it. So saying, you know, well, is that an opinion or do I can I picture that? You know, that's another way to do it. Is Does that does that draw a picture? And if I, am I picturing the same thing as 10 other people would be picturing? Um, and that will tell you if it's opinion or fact. Um, and then, as I say, ask yourself, is this provable? Um, is there what's the proof to back mm -hmm. it up? And if there is proof, then that proof is the statement rather than the opinion statement. Right. That's great. Wonderful. Any thoughts, questions for Rebecca? I love how she simplifies things and breaks it down to easy steps. That is simple. And, you know, I, I, I like that you talk about the facts first because, you know, I want to get into the story. Right. Yeah. And I think what's important, too, is to make sure that the story supports the facts. Um, so that that's why you need to get the factual part together first. I think the story kind of warms people up and, and maybe a little bit yeah. more memorable than just straight facts. But when right. you're sharing a case study that can become a case story, add some of the thoughts and maybe some emotional things, some mistakes and, you know, the lessons learned and that kind of thing. So I like how the facts and the story go together. That's great. In Virginia, and it you... gives accountability to the story. Sorry, the, the facts are what give the story accountability. So then you can still lead with the story, but you know you can back it up. Sorry, Virginia. Yeah, I have a question uh, around segmentation. Like I think I think it sounds great when it's like 
somebody who specializes in one thing and goes to one lane, uh, but how do you handle situations where there's multi-segments and there's a higher level of complexity for a client where it's not like such an arrow thread down? Like it seems to me like if you're, you know, in just one front and that's what you do, that it could be really applicable, but how do you handle that challenge? I would zoom out. I mean, I would maintain the challenge and say that's part of why it's difficult. Um, and and because it's not easy to do what what I'm suggesting, and it's it's you know it's not a ten minute conversation. It's an hour, two hour long brainstorming session. Um, so my recommendation would be keep working it until you get it to a single. And if if you're struggling because there are multiple lanes, then I would zoom out a little bit more and a little bit more till you get to a level where you're looking at the brand itself. And the brand has to stand for something, right? It has to exist in one realm, even if then when you get into the details, that realm can be applied to multiple situations or multiple segments. But there has to be a level at which you can sort of bring everything together and say, this business, this brand, or even this individual in the case of a solo has this expertise or skill or approach to the industry that makes them unique. And so that's what you want to get to. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And Rebecca also has a book. Rebecca, put your book in the chat. Let everybody know about your book. She's also got a book coming out too. And I also want to welcome Megan and Stephanie and Sherry. Glad you guys could join us today. So wonderful. We're going to turn it over to Kurt. Kurt, go ahead and introduce yourself and your company. And we'd love to hear your tip. Uh, my name is Kurt Euler. I'm my own company. Um, I uh, help uh, usually B2B mid-market companies um, as their full-time or fractional CMO. So uh, it's a little bit my, about my company. My tip is many marketers I find either don't know about or they're scared about that they have heard about content curation engines. And so since we have a lot of PR and branding pieces out there, um, these are places where there's two that I'll, I'll recommend that you can go to submit content, either your own content or your client's content. They get vetted, added in for curation, uh, for cura uh, so then they're curated as well. And then they go out on other people or other companies' social media accounts. And so these can be long, short posts or long posts. And so usually you want to link to things like stories. Usually it's got to be non-sales content. So case studies sometimes are faux pas, um, but just like good PR, things that are not selly and have a good story behind it. Um, from a marketing perspective, the, the benefits fall into two different categories uh, for me. One is um, if you have gaps in either your personal social media profiles or in your clients, you can choose specific uh, categories. So you could choose just B2B marketing, or you could just choose human resources and say, I only want curated content that comes through on these categories. Um, the uh, So that, that can be good. Uh, the second piece is from your client's perspective, it helps you amplify really good stories. And it doesn't have, sometimes it's great for getting traffic back, but um, it can also be really good for um, just getting inbound leads. So I had a Forbes uh, communication council article I wrote. Um, it got decent traffic. I put it into one of these two that I'll mention um, and had ChatGPT help synthesize what you would learn in the article. So it wrote 2,500 uh, words about it, went on other people's accounts. I got two people reached out to me about keynote speaking opportunities through that. Um, and through those social media posts. And when I spoke to one of them, they're like, I didn't even click through the article. I just read what was what was posted on somebody else's LinkedIn account for it. The two that I would recommend are, one is Q. It's Q with three U's after it. Um, and so both of them uh, both of them are, have costly, uh, do have a cost monthly cost in them, but Q is good. 
you can't submit additional content, only URL to that. So like if you have an article placement for a client. The second one, which I actually prefer, is missing letter curate. Um, and it's missing letter, I'll drop them in the link, but without, without an E after, uh, before the R. Uh, missing letter curate does have a free option. So, and both of them have, if you just want the content to go out, say on your own personal LinkedIn, you can go sign up for free for them and they're great. But if you want to submit content, you do have to pay for both of those. Um, great, I've had great success in both, especially on sending out my client's content. The other benefit is if you have a client with a large um, portfolio of content, um, it drastically uh, increases Google spidering the website and crawling the website. That's great. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate that. Yeah, definitely throw those links in there. Do you have any thoughts on like copyright issues? Because I know you had that Forbes Council article and then you used it in this area. So let's say you have an article published by a magazine and you want to put it in this. What, what do we need to be aware of in terms of copyright? You're not dropping the whole article in there. So you still usually want people to kind of go through it to it. And so, but you do have a lot of content. I mean, you could put up in LinkedIn up to 3000 characters in a um, for a uh, post on LinkedIn. And so to go through and have a synthesized version of, hey, here's what that article is, that placement. Here's what people will learn for it. Give them four or five actual valuable pieces to it. Because um, you're writing content as if you were writing it for a client. You're writing it, it's not in first person. So it's stuff that's of interest, but it's going to be on somebody else's account. That's great. Thank you. Thoughts or questions for Kurt? That's a really helpful, helpful tip. I'm looking forward to looking into those. How are you able to see how it like converts or help? Like how do you analyze this over time to see if it's working or not? Yeah, great question. So um, if uh, in in both of them, if it's on Twitter, you can add mentions in there. So you can also get mentions back to it. But both of them have analytics internal. Um, so they both do uh, link shorteners. So you can see how many people, you get how many shares and you get how many links that are on there. So that's really good. Uh, using Q as an example, I used it with a uh, large residential real estate company. Um, and I, I was on their more expensive plan. Uh, the Q's more expensive plan before you go to enterprise pricing is $5,000 a year, but I can submit up to 100 pieces of content a month at that price. Um, I, I got over 250,000 shares in other people's accounts in one year. Wow. That's a lot. So uh, missing letter, I mean, isn't it going to be that great? Uh, you may get dozens to maybe 150, depending on the categories you choose. Um, but on many of the missing letter things, people like I get an email that comes through and I have to manually go through and choose the individual pieces of content that I want. Um, but you can tailor the content that goes out on people's accounts much more with missing letter curate. So if I had to pick, I'd pick missing letter curate, but both of them have analytics that give you that data. Um, and then sometimes you'll see it in your Google analytics with UTM codes. That's great. And Virginia, you had a thought or question? Yes, uh, I mean, I started to experiment with missing letter. Um, do you have any recommendations about trainings or things like that that you know that you have getting yourself a handle on that can help us understand the system and what it's capable of? Um, I don't really not on miss not not for well because on a missing letter schedule they've got some good trainings themselves for onboarding. You just have to find them on the cure their curate option. There's not a lot. They have some tips that pop up that say longer content's better, and they give you some ranges. Uh, I've just been experimenting with it. And so uh, I spent a lot of time with perplexity and open AI. And so uh, I've been using it to help me uh, efficiently write longer summaries work. Cause like kind of just Stephanie's thing, we've already done the content the issue, writing the art content that's getting placed in Forbes or Fortune or something like that. I don't wanna have to write it again. 
that's where the AI does really well for synthesizing a, a blog post for that. That's so great. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you for sharing those. Is there anybody else who prepared a tip today? I just didn't want to miss anybody. You can just let me know. Is there anybody else that I miss in the auditory? I know we'll do your tip. Stephanie, I have a tip if you if you need a tip. Okay. It's up to you if you want to share. I've got one and then Yonatori was going to share a little bit extra. So do you want to go ahead and share? I'll, your I'll go after her if she's. Okay. You know. All right. All right. Um, wonderful. All right, Virginia, did you want to share a tip? I just got your message. Thanks for putting yes. that, Kurt. Okay, great. Go ahead, Virginia, introduce yourself and we'd love to hear your tip. Yeah, hello. Um, my name is Virginia Navajiger. My company is Transformative Power. Um, you know, and I've been thinking a lot about branding um, and the aspect of brand presence. And one of the things that I've noticed that is happening is that there is like a formulaic ways in which people are creating brands. So you go, you hire, I don't know, a web developer, a graphic designer, they ask you the same questions, and then they go and create something that looks almost like a Canva template, but better, right? So why, why you know, I've been asking myself, it's like, why is that happening? Like, what is the happening that you have a brand, you have an idea, and then you go to somebody who's super mega talented and he makes you something that looks exactly the same as everybody else out there. So why is it happening? And I realized that why is it happening is because people are not capturing the energy of the brand. So if that's happening to you, and if you're going to a graphic designer, you're going to a web developer, you have, you know, your agency that is working with you or whomever is working with you to do a campaign. And they're doing, and you're frustrated because it looks like every single, like, you know, you can just delete the name of somebody and it looks like everybody else. And you can see it in Facebook, right? Like you can see it in ads. Like coach one looks the same as a coach two and there's a problem and solution and you just change their name and their outfit and it looks exactly the same. So one solution I really invite you to think about is the energy of the brand. So ask yourself, what is the energy of my brand? And is this copy, is this design, is this color providing the energy of the brand? Because if you go to like look at motivational videos or you look at, you know, really big brands like Oprah, you will see that it's not the formulaic thing that, that you know, the formulaic meaning, this is where the head lo looks like and this is where the color goes and this is where the thing is. Those elements are there. There is a brand consistent part that is there, but it's the energy of the brand and the consistency of the personality of the brand that really is what works. So I'll invite you to consider that next time that you're frustrated about that. It's a really good point, Virginia. I can see how that can, everything has been templatized, right? You can just go and copy websites, graphic design, all these things. So I can definitely see that. What do you guys think? Have you guys noticed that too? Do you guys have any thoughts on, on um, have you guys seen any examples maybe of companies that have done it really well where they've stepped outside of that box? Or Virginia, I don't know if you have any examples of that. Yeah, I have an example, and I, I think uh, I met Anita Roddick uh, many years ago, who was the founder of 
the body shop. And she used um, organic storyteller and community building and community tribe building to build her brand. And basically what she did is she did this massive brand ambassador program to the power of a story. So one of the things that she did is that she would not capture only like like say the product, right? But she will then like, if she went to say a farm somewhere and then she went to have the colors of that makeup that she created, you will have the product, but you will have the story behind the product with actual real photos of her and her activism. So I think what I think is missing is that most people say you have a product, but you know, say it's a book, say it's a, technology, right? Most people put the photo of the technology in front or put the photo of the book in front. But lately I was looking at a photo of a, of a product of a book and it was like an incredible photo. It was like a book. And then the woman who was the author of the book was coming out of the book. And it was an idea that this is a memoir of her life story, right? So those are really great ways to really... Uh, step out of the box of of the you know the template perspective of branding that's great thank you virginia any other thoughts or questions for virginia wonderful i so appreciate you sharing today all right i'm gonna do a tip today and then we'll go to yana tori and then we'll go to sarah so my name is stephanie richards and my company is sogro public relations and today i want to talk about the things that you need to be prepared to send a journalist if you want media coverage. So this is not an exhaustive list. I'm going to try to get through as many as I can, but I just want to share the things that if somebody wants to interview you, or if somebody is doing an article or you're sending a news release, or this could be for your clients, there are going to be some standard things that a journalist is going to ask for. And you're going to want to have those things ready because you don't want to miss your opportunity or you don't want to make things difficult for the journalist. So the first thing is, is you need to have a news release or a story pitch that is really, really clear and gives them the details that they need in a short amount of information. And then if you can do the work and write a headline for a journalist, that's the next thing they're going to look for. They may or may not use a headline, but the closer you can get to a finished headline for them, even if they can just plug it in, that's going to make their life so much easier. So um, a news release or a story pitch, a headline, and then have numbers prepared for them. So you're not necessarily going to send this in the first contact you have with an editor or a journalist, but have research, have statistics, have facts, have data, anything like that that you can compile that will support your story. Be sure to include that in a way that is digestible for the journalist and just have it already ready. And with that information that you have with the numbers, make sure you have sources included. Don't just say a statistic and expect the journalist to be able to just publish that. They need to have the source so that they can fact check. And if they have to do it themselves, it's going to take a lot of time. If you just have it there for them, they will greatly appreciate that. Also be sure to have your key message and bullet points ready to go. And that's great, especially if you're going to do an interview or somebody's interviewing you over the phone or in person. Another thing I run into a lot of times when people are wanting to write a news release for their company for the first time is they don't have a company boilerplate. This is basically a one paragraph, really short paragraph about your company. And it explains all the basic details about your company. 
you can think of it as your official bio. And this is language that's used in different places. You copy and paste it and put it in if you need a brief description about your company. But there are so many times where people come to me and ask for a news release and they do not have a company boilerplate. And that's almost always needed when you're pitching something. Um, a little bit longer than a company boilerplate is background information on the company, but also think outside of just your company. Let's say you're pitching a story that includes another company or an organization or a nonprofit. Go ahead and get that background information as well. So that way it's on hand in case they need it. Um, another thing that you can compile is quotes. If you have any quotes from any executives that might make sense. Um, something that people often don't think about is your calendar availability. So let's say you're trying to schedule an interview with someone, um, you're trying to pitch to be interviewed on something, include some of your calendar availability and that will make it that much easier. And then a couple things to um, always have on hand is a high resolution logo file, high resolution images and videos, which a lot of people do have, but sometimes people just have to scramble for it or they find out it's not high resolution, especially when it comes to your bio picture, have an updated high resolution bio picture. Um, one thing people often forget, forget though is image cut lines. So that is just a little sentence that goes with the picture that's published that just says what the picture is or where it came from and that sort of thing. Um, have your bio, be prepared to sign a copyright agreement and then make sure your contact information is in there, including like a cell phone number, something that someone can reach you immediately. So those are 16 things that you need to be prepared to send a journalist if you want media coverage for your company. So, all right, Yana Tori, I'm going to turn it over to you and please introduce, oh, uh, let me ask, is there any questions or thoughts? I do have a question. Don't run so fast. Sorry, I forget. <laughs> so years ago, I, I did pre PR in, in Marcom and press releases were the hot, hot thing. I'm wondering how, you know, how they stand up these days, uh, you know, journalists are inundated with news, fake news, half news, soft news, hard news. Um, is it better to send a full-blown press release or better to just do a pitch via email with some brief information and, and wait for a reply? It depends on the type of news that you are trying to pitch. If you have a straight news story, like let's say it's a merger and acquisition story or something like that, a press release is great. It's something people are familiar with, it gives all the information and it's something that's expected. So, and it also gives a journalist a sense that this is out there, it's not an exclusive, people are gonna probably cover this too. So it just sets the relationship up and the expectations. If you're doing something like a thought leadership piece, then that certainly is gonna be better as a pitch. If you can get another story out of a news release, a lot of times I'll write a news release if it's not just a straight news story, but maybe something that's a little more interesting. I'll write a news release to get the facts or have that on hand if somebody wants it. But sometimes I'll try to make a pitch out of that and not send the actual news release, but just see if I can pitch it different ways to different editors mm. and use it that way, almost like the foundation. And then from there, you figure out what stories you're going to use. But they're still they're still popular and editors still ask for them. And then a lot of people post them on news wires just to get their name out there, even though that usually doesn't get covered by journalists. If people are searching, then it comes up in the news feeds. Yeah. And then what's your position on follow-up once you send something out? Follow-up is helpful if you do it in a respectful way that's not bothering somebody over and over. And a lot of times the best way to follow up is to add a little bit more information and be able to maybe add something else to the story, give some more statistics or confirm 
it feels a little bit like, oh no, I'm going to bother this person. But a lot of times somebody just missed a story. And if it's something they really want to cover, sometimes that second follow-up will really be helpful for them, but you really don't want to do much more than that. Right. Thanks. Yeah. Virginia, you had a question? Yes. Um, what is your take uh, around balance of soft and hard, meaning like soft story, kind of connected, emotional and hard facts? Um, what is your take on that? It really depends on the industry that you're in and what the stories are that you can pitch. So a lot of times you want to do a mix and as much news as you have that you can put out there, put it out there. But the thought leadership pieces, the pieces that are going to be more um, of the human interest stories, those are going to have more emotion in it. So you ideally would like to have a mix. There's going to be some things that are fairly straight news and then some things that are going to be a little bit more on the human interest or emotional side. And that always connects with people more. Great. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Yana Tori, would you like to introduce yourself and share your news that we all need to know about? She and I were chatting a little bit before. Um, and you guys can be very interested in what she has to say. Or hopefully, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm Yana Tori. I'm a deliverability specialist um, and I'm part of one of partners um, at two companies, Email Console and Especial Mail. Have a bit of a weird job. It only exists when people have problems, apparently. Uh, my job isn't necessarily to be sending out emails, the marketing. I do not care about any of that personally. My job is to make sure that the emails that you guys send through the tools that you're purchasing are actually arriving and landing in the inbox. People have this misconception that when they send out emails, Google has to accept it as long as the subscriber email exists. And that is definitely not the case. Um, so the tip of today is more of an announcement. Nothing that I will say is something I haven't said before. The main difference is October 3rd. Yahoo and Google have made an announcement saying that they're going to be enforcing the best practices. They've been screaming on top of rooftops for the last um, 10 to 15 years. None of the changes are anything dramatic, but in certain cases, it may affect the way that people are doing business. So the changes are very simple, and you may have heard me say this before. So the first one is to authenticate your center domain. Uh, it sounds very techy, but as long as you know how to copy paste, you're good to go. The point of authentication is to prove that the domain that is sending the emails is actually you. Uh, so we all know about like PayPal and like all these like scams coming from various countries. Um, unfortunately, if you're sending emails using MailChimp or HubSpot, for example, and you haven't done authentication on the Google side, on the any inbox side, it just looks like it might not be you. I own an email marketing tool. People who work at MailChimp could very easily pretend to be any of you. Um, they don't have any, they don't have to confirm an email address. They don't have to do any of that. If they want to pretend to be you, they can. The difference between people who are authenticated or not is that the email would not be authenticated in the case because I do not own your domain or PayPal. And you, in the other hand, do. And you can prove that these emails are real and the other ones are not. It's not like 100% foolproof. Some really good people like me can kind of go around it. But at the end of the day, there is still a difference between a real email coming from a sender domain that's authenticated and ones that are not. And for people who know what it is, the main issue is that you forget sometimes that there is a tool that you're using that's using your domain. And mainly the one people forget is their personal inbox. So if you're using G Suite or Microsoft Office, you may have authenticated MailChimp and whatever you're using, but you haven't authenticated your actual inbox. Um, so that needs to be done. The cutoff is 1st of February. 
Um, I've spoken with the Google Postmasters and things like that. Uh, they're not going to be uh, changing and updating spam filter for all of their customers. One shot in February is going to be like a thing that they roll over, but we don't know who is going to be affected first or have these updates in their inbox. So depending on who you're emailing or your customers are emailing this, there might be a decline. Uh, and unfortunately, there's not going to be like a message being told to the sender saying, hey, we're blocking the emails. It's just, well, too bad for you. You don't know. Mm. Um, so it's very, very important if you have any customers um, that are sending emails or you have any brands that are sending emails to just like double check with them if their email marketing tools, their automation tools, their CRMs, billing, invoicing, whatever sends emails with a domain um, is authenticated. And uh, they're enforcing DMARC, which is the hardest one. And people panic. If you guys have questions, just let me know. Or Google my name. I've written about it extensively. Uh, we've been talking about it for like over 10 years. Um, and no one really wants to do it. So now you guys don't have a choice because Google and Yahoo said. Um, the second requirement that they're asking for, which is not anything complicated, is an easy unsubscribe process. So I don't know if you guys have received any emails. Uh, I mean... I assume you have uh, from brands, but in Gmail, there's this like button that sometimes appears like right next to the sender email that says unsubscribe. So um, that's more of a ESP thing like MailChimp and HubSpot and my ESP has to make this update. Most of us have made the update years ago when it existed, when it started existing, because it's a really cool feature, but it needs to be a one click that one. Um, the whole point of Google and Yahoo spam filters is to stop and minimize unsolicited and unwanted emails. So you may have given your email to Amazon, but if you bought a spatula, you don't need another email to buy another spatula today. That is considered unwanted, even though you gave them the email. Um, and Google is a billion dollar industry, a business, sorry. They know if people care about the email or not. So um, you can hire somebody like me to like help ensure the emails are landing in the inbox. It was like, three people and a half to do my job, um, you need to be sending emails that people want. Uh, so this might mean to reduce um, the number of people who are getting your emails constantly. And in some extreme cases, the business has to change. So we were talking about this a little bit earlier. So one industry that is really going to get impacted or has been impacted, for example, is um, the newsletter business. So people you pay to get a newsletter every day. So if I'm getting 365 emails a year, we can all agree that I'm not going to read all 365 emails, even if I'm paying to get them. But on the Google side, Google doesn't know, doesn't care about this. All they see is that I've opened five to 10 emails out of 365. So what's going to happen over time is that Google is going to, like, like we agree that that's how social media works. He's going to see what I tend to like, me, Yanatori personally, and see if I should continue receiving all the emails of this customer, uh, of the sender, sorry, or not. So maybe I've been intrigued by a specific subject line. I don't even notice what I'm doing, but I specifically like reading them on Mondays. Google's going to learn that and is going to say, well, she's going to get them only on Mondays now. And all the other emails that I am paying for are going to land in spam or actually nowhere at all. And the sender is not notified of this. It doesn't bounce, doesn't do anything. It just doesn't land. And this is very scary for people because you may have really good reputation, but this has nothing to do with your reputation anymore. If the person specifically doesn't want your emails, they're not going to get them. And you may still maintain that good sender reputation. So then it makes it a lot more difficult to fix things or pinpoint what part of the marketing strategy needs to change. Um, but in case this is a, something for you, it's very important to kind of go look in your list and see, okay, from the people who received emails in the last three months, how many emails did I send to them and how many of them were opened? If it's one email in the last six months and you send 60 of them, doesn't look good on you. Not because you're not allowed to email them, just because unfortunately Google sees what happens in my inbox and what I'm doing with the emails. They don't really care about your business more than, more than they have to, right? And the third one, uh, which is the thing that made everybody panic, 
um, is that the spam rate ratio um, that is going to be acceptable is now 0.1%. Um, if you go over 0.3 more than once or you know, to a point that Google decides it's not okay, they will start flat out blocking the emails from coming into the inbox. And to fix the deliverability, the only way to do that is to continue sending emails and by fixing, of course, what you have to fix, like cleaning out people that, you know, might've bought a mattress yesterday and they're never going to buy another one today. Um, and ensure those people are put in a sunset policy. Uh, you're going to have to clean out people that, you know, if you found an Excel sheet from a customer base that you had three years ago, it's not the time to be uploading it in your CRM or your email marketing tools. No more cold emailing. I know the US is, uh, it's legal, um, but that's not the point. Google doesn't have to care yes or no, their policy says that if they see that you're sending unwanted emails, unsolicited emails, or people report them spam, bye-bye, we don't like you anymore. Um, it's a little bit scary uh, when it comes to Google, especially because, um, I don't know if you guys know this, Google does not tell you if somebody has reported the email spam. So if you send me an email to my Google account and I report it as spam, your MailChimp, your HubSpot, my SPSL mail, nobody is told that this subscriber has reported the email as spam. The only way to know is to go and sign up to postmaster.google.com. This is like the Equifax uh, from Google. So Google cares about Google. Google doesn't really care about what Microsoft thinks about you. Google cares about what they receive and what their customers receive and what now they think about you. So the only way to get your spam rate is through that tool. Um, it gives your percentage. It does not give you who. So if you get a 2% today and a 1% tomorrow, it's not the same people. It's 2% of the emails that Google received today, complain and report your email as spam. Cool, good luck, figure it out. And tomorrow, if some is the 1%, it's a new 1%. If I report your email as spam, the next time you send something to me, unless it's something that Google deems it's important, like a, an airline ticket, I might've reported their marketing emails as spam, but I bought a ticket today, I should get it. Um, all the emails are gonna go to spam. And if an email lands in spam, you can't further report the email as spam. It's already in spam. So if some, if you get a new percentage today, it's not the same people as yesterday. Um, then you have to go and figure out who's received emails um, and see who might be the person that should not be receiving emails anymore because they have reported email spam. So if you have a lot of customers in your list that are using domains, uh, they don't use like at Gmail, for example. So I have like an at Yanatori or at Espesal Mail. I'm using G Suite. One really easy way is to use a tool like uh, usebouncer.com. They're a list validation tool, but they give one of the columns they provide is the provider. So you can shoot them a whole list of email addresses of your customers and figure out, especially the ones that are domain-based, what spam filter they're being that is, is being used in the back. So is it a Microsoft Office inbox? Is it Proofpoint on top of it? Is it G Suite? So that can help you as well figure out on a statistics level how things are working. Because you can imagine that many lists are like 98% Google, G Suite, and Microsoft, and then Yahoo, iCloud, and the rest. Um, so you should definitely care what Google thinks of you. You should definitely care what Microsoft thinks of you, but the way the inboxes work are different. Microsoft, uh, Google, sorry, opens and clicks on emails, spam filters do. So you may think somebody has opened it and they definitely haven't. Um, so the opens and clicks may be a little bit inflated. And on the Microsoft side, especially if you're doing B2B, um, I don't know if you guys remember back in the day, cause we're so old. Um, when we first had cell phones and we had limited data, if we got an email, we had to like agree to download the images. Right. So we would see only the text. And then it was like, click here to like download all images. A lot of Microsoft um, Office, if you're not, especially if you're using the app still, has that implemented. If you're using like uh, Amazon as an email address, uh, that's the same thing. So I may have opened the email, but I didn't 
care enough to download the images. So you, the MailChimps of the world are, don't know that I've opened um, an email. Uh, so your open rates for a Google, your Google crowd or your Google subscribers may be higher and the 28% might be what it, where it's at. And the Microsoft will consistently be at five or 10%, not because less people are opening it, just because the statistics are unable to come back to the email marketing tool you use. And that will give you like a baseline. And whenever the numbers go up really, really high and you didn't do anything special, there might be some extra spam filters, you know, going crazier. There's something that they're looking at. And if it's going down as well, maybe people are not receiving the emails anymore. So it is extremely important to um, adhere by these rules. I mean, they've been rules and best practices for years. I don't think, like I've had people we've, we have, I've announced it to, just like, hey, by the way. And then they freaked out and they're like, oh my God, what do you mean I can't have spam rates? And I was like, but, but why do you want people to report your email as spam? Like, I don't, I don't understand the logic. We all agree that we're getting too many emails every day. Amazon keeps selling us things that we just bought yesterday. Leave me alone or send me something that is valuable to me. And Google and Yahoo are saying enough is enough. We want to make sure that no one is being scammed. We want to make sure, and it's, it, sa it saves your brand money if no one's pretending to be you. It saves other people money if they're not being scammed. Um, don't send unsolicited emails. I don't understand why that's such a hard rule to abide. Uh, if I don't want your emails, don't, don't send them to me. If I don't know you, don't send them to me. And the third one is like, if I don't want your emails anymore, let me go. And that's it. None of these rules are crazy, but it is a little bit scary if none of these have been thought about before um, or you've never really cleaned your list or checked an engagement. You know, if they've opened one email in the last six months, that might have been enough, but not anymore. So um, and the panic is that it's starting in February. And to my knowledge, we see it already uh, impacting customers. Google doesn't just like roll it out to billions of customers uh, in a single day. So they're slowly implementing different changes. Uh, so it's extremely important to keep an eye on it and to not panic. Email is not dead. It's not MailChimp's fault. Uh, Google knows the difference between the IP coming from MailChimp and you deciding what you're going to market and to whom. Um, they're going to penalize you as a sender and not the ESP, of course. Wow. And that's it. So much. Oh my gosh, Yana Tori, there's so many questions and thoughts. Um, so when you and I were talking right before we went live, we were talking about if you do not authenticate the average business owner, there's a really good chance that your emails are just going to be blocked and you won't know. So for the average business owner, um, is there a guide, like, do you have something put together like a PDF with steps or is there anything that you would recommend for people to be able to go step-by-step step and do this? Or do you have something like a newsletter that people can follow these things? Um, definitely sure. put that in the chat. Um, I have a couple of options. So I, because I thought this was important years ago, um, I opened like a free, like NGO organization, me and myself, and I do it for free or for like a small, like a tip at the end of the day for spending an hour doing it. Um, and I just do it for people. I think it's unfair that like people like PayPal and Amazon can do it and Businesses that are starting cannot, and they're using Shopify or whatnot, and they're not authenticated. Uh, so you can always contact me. I'll help you out, uh, no problem. If not, there are um, support documents on every email marketing tool that you're using. May it be like a billing tool like Stripe or uh, CRM, MailChimp, what, whatever you have. They all have, if you write SPF, DKIM, and DMARC, they will have the corresponding uh, information. It always looks very techy, but at the end of the day, the only thing you need to do is copy what MailChimp gives you. So they give you like four things. You copy each and you put it in each place. And if you want somebody else to do it, so you can kind of like 
not bully, but you can ask the support team and act like you really don't know how to use like your computer and just say like, hey, I don't know where to get this information. Can you give it to me? And then you go to your GoDaddy or wherever you bought your domain and your DNSs and say, hey, I've done this. I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help? And sometimes you get the wrong person like, oh, well, you have to do it. We cannot do it because if we break something, it's our fault. Just do it again until you find someone who's going to do it for you. The GoDaddy people, especially if you're like, I put it and it's not working. They'll, they'll, they'll do it. Uh, you just might have to push a little bit, but those are the two elements. So wherever you're sending emails from, so this is your Google account, your mail, whatever is using your domain and it's not your IPs and your infrastructure. You need to get that information and then you take all that information and you put it in your GoDaddy, Namecheap or wherever you bought your domain. Um, and people are scared sometimes to do the DNS changes, but if you've connected a Wix website once in your life, you can do this. Uh, but you can always feel free to ask questions. Uh, I've been talking about it for, for years um, as well. That's great. And that's why we love to have you because you bring us all of the email news that the rest <laughs> of us go, what's going on in email? So oh, yeah. um, it's super helpful. Any other thoughts or questions for Yana Tori? I know that's a lot, but I'm, I think a lot of business owners and marketers are going to get caught off guard and <laughs> we're going to see all the open rates and everything go down and not necessarily know why, because as people are not getting them, it's not that they're not opening them. It's just, they're flat out not getting the emails. Um, so this is going to be a, this is going to have a big impact on all of us and our, our clients. So any other thoughts or questions with Brianna Tori before we move on to Sarah? So many questions. So many I know. questions. Thank <laughs> you for that. Brianna, like, by the way, <laughs> I was like drinking from a, high, a fire hose and I'm a web developer. So I hold hands with a lot of this email stuff as far as yes. updating DNS records and whatnot. And I know I have a lot to learn still, but I've, I've, I've made some progress, but, uh, Kind of outside of that, um, some some of the things that my clients will occasionally reach out to me about is why they're getting flagged as spam with their personal email, and and then I see the the huge footer that they've got on all their emails going out that's got all kinds of links and stuff, and obviously you know that's a a big part of it. I think you know whenever you have links um, in your signature, so. Do you have any tips um, maybe that I can pass along to, to oh. maybe help mitigate some of that? Yeah, definitely. And if you want to get on a call at some point, just like geek out about stuff, definitely do that. Like, hey, I can talk a lot about this. Um, one of the first steps to do is to figure out which inboxes are having, like which ISPs and spam filters are having a problem with you. The easiest way is to do like an inbox placement test. If you go like on my website, there's like a very tiny short one. Um, if you've ever done one, you, we give you a list of email addresses, you send your campaign to it and we tell you where they've landed, inbox spam or nowhere. Um, of course, we check if it's on a block list and all, all that jazz authenticated. So the main, the 99.99% of all the problems of every customer I've had in the last 10 years is based on their list. Who are they sending emails to? And the reason why that is, is that the spam filter may be smart and like look at these words and links and all that jazz. But if I don't read your emails over time, a human is reporting your email as spam. The spam filters are like below what a human wants, right? And the main issue is that people have accumulated these lists over time and they've just never removed anyone ever. Um, so over time, your list is growing, but your engagement is going down because you always have this like rolling window of like the same, like, like 30 new people sign up and they're going to be active for three months and forget about you. And then you just have a rolling window. The other one is that they're not like protecting their form. So like a lot of bots are going in. And the most common one in the US is everyone's purchasing lists. And I understand, like I get it and I wish I could do it as well. Um, but the spam filter is going to figure it out. And people are like rotating domains, changing IPs or moving tools, which also doesn't look good. If I go to the bank and I keep like opening and closing credit cards, 
it doesn't matter how much money I have and how well I pay my bills. It just looks weird. Um, and the inboxes, what they mainly see is what is happening within their customers. Um, the links and the spammy words do affect some in some way, but you can imagine like Walmart talking about like diapers and food. And then one day saying we have a pharmacy and like they're selling pills. The spam filters would be like, mm, like this is not what you used to talk about. So the words are considered spammy in that case. But if like, you know, you're, um, I don't know, in the adult industry, or you're doing like online casinos, or you're um, you're actually doing cryptocurrency, they can't penalize you for talking about things that are legitimately yours to do. Um, the important thing is to get people to open the emails. If people don't, that is the first sign of where Google's like, okay, but we have to store your email in like 20 different databases over the world in case one you know catches on fire. Why am I storing these emails that no one wanted? They never signed up to. And you've been emailing them for like 10 years. You should have noticed that they never bought anything again. So it's the list is like the most, the, the thing that happens the most. If people clean their list, their deliverability jumps up in the next like week or two instead of like three, four months. It's insane. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah, Tori, I feel like we need to have you have like a whole segment about email. Maybe we'll do like a one session <laughs> on email. So, all right, good deal. Well, I'm going to jump to Sarah. Sarah, can you introduce yourself, please, and give your tip, and then we will wrap things up. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I appreciate the extra added information you gave us today. Um, my name is Sarah Stewart. I'm an account manager with Sogur PR, and I'm our social media expert and offer social media tips for the council. So I'm going to share my screen. Um, I came up with a quick little tip based on a 2023 report of social media trends. Um, and so um, there was a couple things that I thought was interesting, but a lot of people are like, okay, you know, I get a website, um, I've got a business, um, I want to get on social media, I want to start marketing my business, you know, and it's, it's I was doing the metrics at the end of the year for a lot of our clients. It's interesting to see, you know, throughout the year, sometimes you feel like, you know, we're not doing well on Facebook. We're not getting the engagement we want on Twitter. You know, we're not getting the engagement on LinkedIn. And you wonder, is this working? Is it worth it? You know, all the effort I'm putting into this. Um, so this report, it is worth it. Uh, increased exposure, the number one reason that people, you know, benefit that people are getting out of social media marketing. Um, and increased traffic is the number two. Um, I, I shared this document. Um, it's it's a larger document with a bunch of interesting trends in the chat. So you guys can download it and look at the full thing. But what I wanted to talk about for my tip mostly was increased traffic. So with Facebook, a lot of people are, Facebook has been declining. People are not using Facebook as much like marketers. Still, it is the biggest. It's the giant. Like 86% of marketers are using Facebook. Um, B2C marketers love Facebook and have a lot of success. Um, it, and it's very successful. B2B, not as much. You don't see it. Um, but in terms of, you know, with in terms of referrals, Go here, driving most traffic. Facebook is still driving the most traffic to your website. So for those B2B marketers, you know, people that, you know, have B2B clients and B2C as well, um, driving traffic to your website, Facebook is like the yellow pages of social media. Like people, when they're looking up, you know, for a different type of business or a product they need or things like that, you know, they are often going to find, going to look around your Facebook page, going to look for details about you, all that kind of stuff. 
and then they're going to go to your website, which is what we want them to do because we're driving traffic and trying to capture those leads and capture those clients. Um, so referrals was my main point because we had a client who their Facebook page, you know, always seems lackluster. Like it just with a lot of B2B clients, that Facebook page just seems lackluster and you're like, we're not getting as many likes. I don't know if this is worth it. And still, right after Google, Facebook was, you know, the top referral for them last year. LinkedIn was right after that. Um, so that really, you know, is just something that you can tell your clients, like it is worth it to put that out there and spend that time on that social media asset so that you're driving traffic to your website. Um, so that is my tip today. Um, most for sales, Facebook, B2C, that's still contributing the most useful. All these are in the document. This is like, was the major findings from the study, um, Facebook declining, like I said, but even though it's declining and you hear that, don't think that you can just walk away and not do it. You should have, still have a Facebook, you know, profile for your business because it's still driving a lot of traffic and it's still contributing to sales. Um, a lot of this stuff is not, Probably not too surprising, but people are more interested in YouTube, more interested in video. TikTok continues to grow. Instagram is hot. Instagram is also interesting. Like it continues to be hot. And I think it's hotter with the younger generations. Like even my teenagers use Instagram a lot where they don't like Facebook at all. So like it seems to be having more of, you know, a long term like continued use. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops over time. But in terms of when someone wants to learn about your business, they're going to go to your Facebook page because that's where they've got, it's just like all neatly laid out with your address and your website and your, some reviews and they can see everything. So it's, it's just very useful to have that. Um, and that is my tip for today. My name is Sarah Stewart. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. We're always surprised when we see these stats, especially because we do so much B2B PR. It's always like Facebook is still just hanging on. <laughs> yeah. Thoughts or questions for Sarah? Am I understanding correctly then that Facebook is seeing less traffic, but the traffic that it's seeing is more valuable from a business perspective? I think that it sees, it's still seeing a lot of traffic. It's like, I think what it is, is there's more competition and people are okay. using other, you know, um, social media platforms and things, but it's still used a lot and people maybe not, aren't necessarily engaging with the content as much like, um, on Facebook specifically, people are in a lot of private groups um, instead of the public forums. And so they're in the private groups and that's where they're engaging with content. So, you know, they may not, you may not be getting a lot of those, um, especially for organic content. You're not, you know, it may not be showing up in as many people's feeds, but people are still, if they're searching for a business, they're just, I mean, people right. are as likely to search for a business on Facebook as Google sometimes because they want to see the post about it and their reviews and things like that. So, right. you know, it's still an incredibly valuable resource um, for both B2B and B2C. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for coming today. A couple things as we wrap up. I'm putting some things in the chat. Go ahead and sign up for the next one, which is February 20th. And we're going to meet at 10 a.m. We log on at 9.50 just to chat. I put a link in there if you would like to present a tip go to sogropr.com backslash submit. And then we review those tips. And those are the people that are chosen to present. We'll let you know if your tip is chosen. And then we would love for you guys to subscribe to the Sogro PR, um, the Sogro Marketing Council podcast. 
So we take this entire presentation and we put it on the Sogar Marketing Council podcast and we would love some subscribers there. We also take people's tips and we'll separate those into each individual and we'll a lot of times post those on LinkedIn. We have a YouTube channel as well. So if you do present a tip, you not only get to be on the podcast, but you also sometimes will get, we'll take the best tips and we'll take those video clips and give them to you, which you can use to market your company as well. So it's just such a great, great thing to do. So thank you guys so much for your tips and please invite your marketing friends, bring a friend next time. The more people we have, the more discussion, the more tips. We just love to be able to um, meet new people and then grab all the contact information in the chat. Definitely reach out to this group of people. I can personally vouch for many of these people. I've worked with a lot of these people. I know a lot of these people. It's a great group to connect with, have coffee, have coffee with, do business with. Um, so yes. So thank you guys so much for coming. And I look forward to seeing you guys February 20th. Don't forget to sign up for the next one. And don't forget to submit your tips so we can have you guys present next time. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the SoGrow Marketing Council podcast. Want to be part of our next meeting? Visit SoGrowPR.com. That's S-O-W-G-R-O-W-P-R.com. And click on the Marketing Council tab to sign up for our next event. Until next time, keep growing.